Hey church, John here. Uh, obviously, as you cast your eyes about you, you'll notice, or probably have already noticed, that I and my family aren't there today. I'm sure Darren's already mentioned we're home with a few cases of COVID. Nothing too serious, don't need to be worried, but please, we appreciate your prayers. Uh, I'm going to be preaching to you today in this unideal circumstance from home on the video. Uh, I apologise for any sound quality issues. This is recorded on my phone. Uh, but I suppose before I get into that, I just wanted to say that we wish we could be there with you guys today. Uh, we wish we could be worshipping with you all, be singing with you, praying with you, and, uh, and, and together coming to the Word of God. Uh, but we are grateful for the existence of things like video cameras, such that we can now do this even uh, on a week where I'm restricted from coming and being with you. Uh, if you've got a Bible with you, I encourage you uh, grab it. We are continuing on in our First Corinthians series. We're in chapter 14 of First Corinthians. Uh, now, in this series, uh, we have been going through. It's uh, we've been looking at. Uh, who God calls us to be in the gospel. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians, we, we've titled it Becoming Who We Are. Because all of 1 Corinthians calls us into who we are in the gospel. And not in like a high and distant way, it calls us in in very specific ways. Because in this letter, Paul is writing to a specific church in a specific context, which was experiencing some very challenging issues. And one of those issues is what we're going to look at today. Like we've said, this is a situational letter. And actually, before I go any further, why don't I pray for us? Jesus, I pray that even through this very unideal medium of video through to the surface, that you would speak to your people as, as, as the word of God is uncovered for us. Would you open our hearts up? To see Jesus? Would you open our eyes to the Lord? Would you lead us to know you more, to experience your presence in our lives, and to become who we are in Jesus? And, and Lord, particularly on this challenging issue that we're looking at today, would you guide us? Guide us into being who we are when it comes to the gifts that your Spirit gives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, a very situational letter we're in. And, and this week, we are in the third of four weeks where we're going through a section in which Paul speaks to this often disagreed about, uh, often confusing question of the gifts of the Spirit. He's not just been speaking to the more remarkable looking gifts, although as we covered in week one, uh, administration looks pretty remarkable to someone like me. But to all the gifts, he's been speaking to all of the gifts that the Spirit gives. And, and, and really, from the fact that he's mentioned a few times different lists, he's mentioned different gifts at different points, we get the idea he's really just sampling even. The, the gifts that the Spirit gives are endless. He's not limited to a short list of things that the Spirit can do through his people. But this week, we really begin to get an idea of, the, of which of the gifts were creating controversy. Uh, in the church at Corinth, because Paul really zeroes in now, and the things that he zeroes in on are tongues and prophecy, really, particularly tongues. Uh, it seems that the situation here was that the Corinthian Christians were overplaying the importance of the gift of tongues, elevating those who had this gift regardless of how it was used. Now, we'll get into what the gift of tongues is in just a minute, by the way. 
But if we if we felt speculative, uh, it doesn't take much. We we might guess. It seems from the text that tongues is in many ways the perfect intersection of of uh, impressive and falsifiable, perhaps, and that this might have been the problem of what was happening there. But then, as much as they were overemphasizing the role of tongues and their importance, they seem to have been also underemphasizing the role of prophecy. Again, we'll talk in a minute about what is meant by prophecy here in the text. But a good way to get our heads around where we are in this section is to kind of simplify, uh, simplify down from, from chapter 12 where we started, simplify down what we've seen so far into some questions and answers. That'll just give us an idea of where we're up to in the discussion of what Paul's talking about. So, and, and, and if you were doing it this way, you'd, you'd say that our section, chapter 12, started with this question. What are the gifts for? Why have they been given to us by the Spirit? For what purpose? And chapter 12 gave us the answer to that question, didn't it? The gifts are given to the church so that we make so that we might make much of Jesus as we are used to bless one another in the church. The gifts are given to the church so that we might make much of Jesus as we use them to bless one another in the church. The next question is then, well, then how should the gifts be used? How should we use these gifts? And chapter 13, all of chapter 13, the beautiful love poem, which is more than a beautiful love poem, though not less than, gives us, gives us the answer. We use the gifts lovingly as we use them to reflect the love of Jesus Christ. And the next question then is, well, then, how should loving use of the gifts look in the local church. What, I mean, it's, it's lovely to say that it's loving, but what does that mean specifically for the Corinthian church and then broadly for every church? What does it mean for us to walk in using these gifts lovingly as we reflect the love of Christ? And that's what today's passage answers for us, verses 1 to 25 of chapter 14. We get three really practical responses to that question of how the loving use of the gifts is to look in the local church. And although, yes, Paul is going to speak specifically and primarily to the gifts of tongues and prophecy, it's important that we see that the principles here actually apply much more broadly than that. They apply to all of the use of the gifts. And, and to some extent, they broadly apply to all that God has given us, how we use what he has given us. So then, back to the question. How do we lovingly use the gifts in the local church, specifically? Paul's first response is this. He says that the gifts should be used to build up, not to puff up. Paul opens this chapter, linking it back into chapter 13. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, we mentioned this back in chapter 12, didn't we? But those words are a serious command that is to be taken seriously by the people of God. We are called by Scripture to desire the gifts. We're not told that we will necessarily each get the gifts that we desire. We will be gifted in some way. None of us will get all of them 
personally, but we will be gifted in some way. And we are definitely, beyond any question in this Bible, we are called to desire them. And so to pray for them, to long that God might give the gifts here at Gospel Church to his people for the glory of his name, so that we might make much of Jesus and that we might build one another up. But then Paul, he talks a lot about using, the, and that's what, he, that's what he does here, he, he talks a lot about using the gifts to build up. The whole reason he wants them to prophesy more than he wants them to speak in tongues is because prophecy builds up. That is to say, it has an effect on someone else to draw them closer to Christ and to build them up towards him. Now, it's worth just pausing here and giving a, a little definition to these words that we're using, right? Uh, prophecy and tongues. When Paul talks about prophecy, when the New Testament talks about prophecy, it's not, it's not a one-for-one -one similarity with this thing in the Old Testament that was the office of the prophet, or prophecy in the Old Testament even. In the Old Testament, you had, uh, like I said, officed prophets. Very few very limited individuals who spoke for God, bringing his words into the, into the context basically infallibly. Uh, which isn't to say that none of them were ever wrong, but if a prophet was wrong, it, it was a very big deal for him. He would potentially, by the law, die for bringing a false prophecy in that situation. There are procedures written into the law for prophets who brought a false prophecy, a prophecy that proved not to be correct. But in the New Testament, and, and, and following on from the New Testament in the, in the church throughout this age, prophecy is a gift which can be given to any of God's people at any time. And although New Testament prophecy still originates in God, a word from God, it comes with the assumption that the speaker may misinterpret that word from God in a way that wasn't familiar in the very few officed prophets of the Old Testament when they came and said, Thus saith the Lord. So that's why the church was called here to weigh any prophecy. And, and they're not doing that to cast down the prophet, you'll notice. They're not doing that so that if the prophecy turns out to be wrongly given, that that person will be thrown out of their midst. Paul doesn't go anywhere there. But because it didn't carry that same authority, and it could prove to be spoken wrongly, or even be, even be a false prophecy. That's still a possibility. We actually kind of see this happening in the Bible, actually. You might remember a few weeks back we mentioned Paul's final journey to Jerusalem and then on to Rome in the book of Acts. And, and in, in his journey to Jerusalem, in Acts 21, Paul's heading towards Jerusalem, and a prophet named Agabus comes to him and delivers a prophetic word to try to discourage Paul, quite transparently, to discourage Paul from going, saying that he will be bound when he goes to Jerusalem. Literally, what he does is he comes and he says, Paul, give me a belt, and Paul gives him his belt, and he wraps it around his wrist and says, so will you be if you go ahead with this, Paul. The implication, don't go, Paul, we don't want you to go to Jerusalem. And all of the people beg him not to go to Jerusalem on the basis of this prophecy. But although Paul does get bound when he goes to Jerusalem, 
we find that Agabus interpreted the prophecy incorrectly, and the people there interpreted the prophecy incorrectly. It wasn't God's will for Paul not to go. He was meant to go and be bound. God was preparing him for what was to happen to him. Finally, it seems clear in the New Testament from the examples that we have and from this very chapter that prophecy was a spontaneous insight from God. That's another thing we need to know about prophecy. Some, something that is revealed, as Paul puts it, actually in our next passage for next week, in 14 verse 30, he talks about something being revealed through a prophetic word. He puts it uh, spontaneously into a person. So clearly this is different from what we call preaching. Uh, I don't want to disenchant anyone here, but uh, I'm, I'm not running 100% spontaneously when I preach to you. In fact, very little of what I say up here is spontaneous. Preaching is from studying God's truth. That's quite clear across, across the New Testament. It is how we impart the good truth of God in our teaching ministry. It is how we build up the church doctrinally to live out the beliefs that we have been called into. There, there might sometimes be overlap between the two. A preacher may get up and deliver a prophetic word whilst they preach, but they're not the same thing. So New Testament prophecy is when God spontaneously reveals an insight to a believer which is to be weighed by other believers and by the church. Tongues, I want to be a little bit less firm on a definition for here. Uh, I think that the clearest interpretation is probably that when Paul talks about tongues, he means being given the ability to declare God's truth in a real language. You can't usually speak. So, for instance, a person stands up and delivers in Russian the gospel good news of Jesus Christ. And so the church is built up if there are Russians present who weren't there uh, otherwise. However, there's, there's at least enough room in the text. I just want to put this in here like that. That, that speaking of another world language, is, is what we see when we see tongues practiced clearly in, in like the book of Acts. Uh, in Acts 2 especially, you know, the, the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they all speak in tongues. And, and they're not speaking in an angelic or t a, a, a tongue that can't be understood. They're speaking in the languages of the people who have come to Jerusalem. And it's for this gospel purpose that they will hear the good news about Jesus and be saved. Uh, and that's what it leads to. They, they, they ask what's happening. Paul preaches the gospel to them, preaching, tongues, separate. And then they come to salvation. They come to repentance through this. However, and I just want to light, lightly say this, there, there is at least enough room in the text that he might allow that there are also languages that are not human. Languages of angels when people might be led to speak. Still, it's quite clear that it can't just be something that's nonsensical. It just can't be a, a repeated sound or something like that. They, they are speaking something that makes sense, even if it doesn't make sense to the people of this world. But all that being said, Paul directs us, use the gifts to build up, not to puff up. He says prophecy is better because it builds up. Because a prophetic word can be easily understood. Whereas a tongue can't unless someone is there to interpret. So tongues aren't to be used in church, he says, unless there is the possibility of interpretation. 
But prophecy is always welcome in an orderly way, not something you shout out halfway through a church service, but it is given in an orderly way, in a planned way, that we give a time for people to prophesy. And, and we're going to cover that next week because prophecy always speaks to people. Prophecy doesn't take as much interpretation. Prophecy doesn't require someone special with a gift of interpretation to interpret it. Prophecy can always bring God's truth to a person. Prophecy can always reveal a person's heart. Prophecy can always encourage a fellow believer and build them up. So prophecy is much more to be desired than tongues, Paul says. But don't miss it. This is about more than prophecy and tongues. What this means is that whatever God has given you as a gift and whatever he has given you in general, because all that we have is a gift from him, really, it should be used to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. You meet people who might be uh, gifted as teachers. I've met people who, might, who, who, who seem like they may have had something of a teaching gift. They certainly love to delve into scripture and can explain well to others, clearly to others, what they found there, and what they believe they found there even, yet they use those gifts to stir up controversy. Have you ever met that person? And that's, that's a beautiful, a, a terrible example actually, of this, of, of a gifting used not to build up, but to puff up the person, and to break down as a result the church. You can be gifted administratively and yet use that gift purely for your own benefit, for your own life, and, and, and now apply it in... Sorry. And, and, and you could never apply that in the church that God's put you in, and that would, be, that would be a puffing up, not a building up use of your gifting. You can be gifted musically. Gifted in helping others. Gifted with super, super supernatural faith. I say that because all faith is supernatural to some extent. But you must use those gifts in the local church to build up the local church. It's not enough just to be gifted. They must be used to build up your brothers and sisters, these gifts. They must be used for the body of Christ that God has made you a part of. And if you're a believer in Jesus, he has called you into the body. That is abundantly clear in the Bible. You're called to use them to bless the body, the church, to bless fellow believers, to be a part of this thing that we call church, which leads people to know Jesus more and reflect him more beautifully. So, first of our three answers to uh, how are we to lovingly use the gifts in the church today is that the gifts should be used to build up, not to puff up. Second, the gifts should be used in spirit and in truth. They should engage the spirit and the mind. There's, there's a false division that often gets made, uh, but where we see something as less spiritual if it is more comprehensible. So we have really spiritual things, spiritual life and experiences down here, and then really logical, reasonable things over here, things that your mind can grab, grab hold of. Um, you know, so, and, and so spiritual would basically mean ecstatic, should mean wild, 
in that situation. This idea that when a person has a spiritual experience, it should be heavy on experience and light on truth experienced. But Paul throws that out entirely, doesn't he? He says, if I pray in a tongue, then my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? Now, clearly, he doesn't think that's a desirable situation, right? If his, if his mind is not engaged, but his spirit is engaged. Paul believes the mind should be active in our worship, in our use of our gifts. And that makes sense, right? Because our worship is in spirit and in truth, as Jesus said. So Paul says, what am I to do? And he's got an answer for us. He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. You see, in the world that God created, the most spiritual experiences that we can have are to truly understand the truth about God and experience that. To understand who He is. To start understand about what He has done and on those grounds to be led into worship by His Spirit. As you are so struck by the truth, to turn and wonder and to turn your wonder into praise. And even here, he's clear, this isn't just for your benefit that you do this. If someone else is watching you and you have a purely spiritual experience with no truth, that doesn't benefit them, does it? But if you are experiencing the truth of God and that leads you to worship God with your mind and your spirit, Paul says that an onlooker will be led to worship as well. They will be led to say amen to your worship. They will be led into agreement with it. They will be led to enjoy God's spirit, led to enjoy the gifts, led to enjoy worship with you and to be built up with you. This is a warning to be wary of a purely experiential Christianity. And also to be wary of a purely cerebral Christianity. So, so not just a purely experiences faith and not just a purely knowledge faith. The Spirit leads us to experience the truth. As Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you we experience the freedom of the gospel, the wonder of worship, the depths of spiritual joy as we experience the truth about Jesus. So how are the gifts to be used lovingly? Well, one, we are used to use them to build up, not to puff up. Two, we are to use them in spirit and in truth. And finally, Paul directs us that the gifts should be used in ways that all unbelievers, sorry, that call unbelievers to repentance and faith in Jesus. The gifts should be used in ways that call believers to repentance and faith in Jesus. 
In verses 20 to 25 of this passage, our last verses today, Paul contrasts the effect of tongues and prophecy on unbelievers who may come into the gathering of the church. And it's a little bit confusing what he says, actually. Uh, he says tongues are a sign for unbelievers. So we look at that and we might think, well, okay, so tongues are a great sign for unbelievers. But that's not what he's saying. And we see that because he quotes here from Isaiah 28, verse 11, by people of strange tongues... And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And that passage from Isaiah 28 is, is, is a passage that was given to uh, unbelieving Israel to say that the Assyrians, a people of foreign tongues, strange tongues, the Assyrians are coming as a part of God's judgment upon them. So he's not, Paul's not saying that tongues are a sign to save unbelievers. Although if they are an unbeliever who speaks that tongue, they, they can be, like we said with the Russian example. But rather that if an unbeliever comes in and just hears everyone speaking in random languages, that's going to work towards judgment for that unbeliever. Like the tongues of the Assyrians work towards judgment for Israel. It's not going to work towards their salvation. They're going to come in and say, you're all mad. And they're going to leave. And they're going to walk away from saving faith in Jesus. They're going to walk away from saving faith in Jesus. But in contrast, he says, prophecy may put in the open the secrets of an unbeliever's heart. Prophecy might be the Spirit's tool of conviction. By prophecy, he, the unbeliever might throw himself or herself on Jesus, repent and believe in him and be saved. It's interesting, actually. This should affect the way that we do our worship services here, shouldn't it? This principle that he's giving us. Not just that we should desire to prophesy here, though we should desire to prophesy here, but Paul's saying worship in a way that might speak the gospel to outsiders who come in. Paul cares about how church looks to people from outside of church. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that something we don't see a lot of? A lot of ink has been spilled about making church uh, approachable to unbelievers, maybe relevant to outsiders, and that's not a bad thing. But what Paul says here should orientate the way that we go about doing that. What we want is for church, utilising all the gifts God has given us, we want church to declare the gospel as clearly and powerfully as possible. To call people to faith as clearly and as powerfully as possible. To point to Jesus every week, every time we gather and say, look at him. He's amazing. He saved us. He went to the cross. He died for us. He carried my sin. He rose again. And by this, we are saved. And by this, you can be saved. We want church to call people into openness. Call people into confessing their sin. If we have prophecy, we want it to point out their brokenness. Not so that we can laugh and say, ha, you're broken. But to say, we're broken too. But Jesus saves broken people. And you can be saved. Maybe that's you today. 
Maybe you've walked in here today and you are feeling the conviction of the Spirit of God now by this random phone recorded video message. I don't know. If it is, please know we're not doing this to make you uncomfortable. We're doing this because it's what you need. Because we love you and God loves you. And Jesus died for you. He died to carry your sins away. And if you turn now and believe in him, you can be saved. If you trust in him and turn away from sin, turn away from the ways you've been running from God, run to him instead. Know that that is his spirit working in you. Know that he is drawing you into him. This is a massive driving force in how we seek to do things here at Gospel Church. I hope that comes across. You might you might notice we don't sing a lot of songs, for instance, with dated language in them. I think we have two these in the thee and thou sense across our music repertoire. Why? We want the gospel to be comprehensible in our praise. To someone who's never been to church before. That's funny, like, like, if you've been to church all your life, thee and thou are strangely familiar language, even reverent language. If you've never been to church before, then you're like, why are these people speaking 400 years ago language? That doesn't make sense. What's going on here? Like, like it's, it's, very, it's, it's uncannily similar to what they might think if they walked into a church full of people speaking in tongues with no interpretation. It may not seem it sometimes, but when I teach, I seek not to use crazy long theology words I try when we have communion we don't wrap it up in incomprehensible religious ritual but we just explain we look in wonder at what Jesus has done for us and we partake we drink the juice we eat the bread we celebrate genuinely but this isn't just a message for the system of the church, understand? This isn't just a message for, well, how do you prepare your worship ministry as a whole? This is Paul speaking to the individual believer as a part of the church here. And let's, let's finish on this today. Do you come to church seeking to welcome in the outsider to Jesus? Do you come seeking to express the gifts that God has given you in order to communicate gospel truth you know during the service after the service as we gather and and have our coffee and, and talk do you seek to use the words that he's given you the breath in your lungs to communicate gospel truth so that we might be built up and so that some might believe some might even come into faith today there's nothing better that we could do with our time and our energy here than to seek to communicate the gospel clearly with everything that we've got. Do you see? As we communicate it, to worship in spirit and in truth. Worship in spirit on the basis of that gospel truth. And as we worship in spirit and in truth, to seek to build up one another in that truth. As we come into the, the rest of our passage for next week, Paul's going to knead that down to the ground even further for us.
But today, I'd just like to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to pray that God would make us a people in that shape, a people who experience the gifts that he's given us in a way that builds up the church, in a way that, that calls people into faith. in spirit and in truth which pray with me now Jesus we thank you for the gospel we thank you that in your love you came down for us that you called us in you died for us Lord and your spirit has changed our lives by leading us to see the glory of Christ if we've believed in him. Lord, I pray for anyone hearing this who has not believed. Let today be the day. We pray that hearts would be turned, that your spirit would act. We pray, Lord, and, and Lord, there's no special words to pray. There's no, no particular uh, line that you have to say. But Lord, I pray that you would move in the heart of that, that person hearing this and that they would just be able to turn to you in faith and say, I believe. I've run from you, God. I've turned from you, Jesus, and yet you've pursued me. And now, by your power, I believe that you are the saviour of the world and my saviour. Lord, I pray for all of us. move in our hearts that we would desire the gifts let us pray for prophecies let us pray for administrators let us pray for helpers and for teachers let us pray for tongues lord let us be a people who long for your spirit to act here and pour out new gifts here that you will use to make much of jesus and build up the church and lord as those gifts come as people here see the gifts that you have given them, we humbly pray that you would build up the church. That you would lead us to be a people who worship with our minds and our spirits. In truth and in spirit, that we would experience the truth of Jesus. And that the truth would be setting us free over and over again. And Lord, we pray that our lives together here as a church and our lives apart through the week and always would be a declaration of your gospel truth that clearly your truth would be seen in our lives and that people would come to faith as they see jesus i pray it all in the name of jesus our savior amen